amen, amen. Well, let me invite you to get your Bibles out and join me in 2 Samuel 19. We're going to continue to worship our great and glorious God by uh, the, or through the preaching and the proclamation of his word. We're in 2 Samuel 19, and as we've been plowing through, pressing through, First uh, and Second Samuel, no doubt we've come across a number of different kings, some good, some not so good. Uh, and, and certainly as we continue through Israel's history, we're going to see that. Uh, but but the, the most notable is obviously King David. Uh, and, and when you think about uh, these kings, these noble and heroic kings, uh, King David is, is certainly a headliner, if not the headliner, uh, of kings within of the scriptures, and yet the pressing question that's in front of us this morning is what would it be like to have this noble, heroic king that's been betrayed by his people? What would it look like for that king to come back? What's going to be the demeanor? What's going to be the tone? How's that going to play out for the people? What, what does that mean? What does that imply for everybody? Is there any hope for Israel? Or are they going to be demolished? in some revenge tour. And the text today highlights the return of David to his throne, and really what we find is a surprising emphasis. In fact, here's where God's word is going to lead us this morning. It's this idea right here, loved ones, that God's king returns issuing pardon and pursuing mercy. Let me say that again. God's king returns, and what is characteristic of his return is that he's issuing pardon and pursuing mercy. Now, now David's going to need a little help initially, uh, and by help, I mean he's going to need to be rebuked uh, by Joab, but what is stunning is how gracious and how merciful uh, David is particularly towards those people who had betrayed him. And, and as you hear that, hopefully in your mind, you're like, wait, that sounds like another king, a greater king, the supreme king, who's going to do this same thing later. And so if the connection is fuzzy, let me make it clear. David is going to be typological of Jesus and that he is going to mirror the pardon and mercy that Jesus offers and grants to us. And so the king returning here with David is really just pointing us forward to the better king who's going to issue pardon and pursue mercy on our behalf. And so before we go any further, loved ones, let us pause, let us pray, let's submit ourselves to the Lord uh, and ask the Spirit of God to do His work through God's Word. Why don't you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank You for Your great kindness towards us. Uh, evidenced in Jesus, uh, evidenced in You giving us Your Word, evidenced in a myriad and a host of other ways as well. And so, Father, in these next few moments as we walk through uh, this chapter, God, we pray that you would uh, give us eyes to see and ears to hear all that your word has for us. God, that we would see the profound uh, sense of pardon and mercy that is unfolding uh, in your word, that we would understand how that uh, is applied to us, that we would see uh, Jesus and his work in what David is doing here. And Father, uh, as we always do, we want to pray for another church in the area. And this morning, God, we're praying for Heritage Christian Fellowship and for Sean Sloan and for that body of believers. God, praying that you would be doing your uh, work through your word in that body of believers in the same way that we long and desire that you'd be doing your work here amongst us this morning. So, Father, would you open our eyes to see? Uh, would you give us ears to hear? 
Would your spirit come and challenge or convict or exhort or, or remind or whatever it is that we need here this morning? We're praying this in the matchless name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen. All right, well, the title of our message this morning is The Return of the King. The Return of the King. And if you remember at the end of last week, uh, David had been told at the end of chapter 18 that his son Absalom, who had attempted this military coup uh, to take over the land and to get rid of his father, had been killed in battle. Uh, and, and so the beginning of chapter 19, you'd like to think that David is celebrating his return uh, and, and the people are celebrating this, this attempted overthrow. And yet what we find is a very different sense and so what you see in the first eight verses of this chapter, looking at this idea of the return of the king, is what you actually find is the rebuke and the return of the king. Before David fully returns, uh, he needs to be rebuked uh, by Joab. And so look at your Bibles. Let me read the first four verses to really set the stage for us. It says this, It was told Joab, behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day, the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. And the king covered his face and the king cried with a loud voice, Oh, my son Absalom, oh Absalom, my son, my son. And so you have... This, this scenario where, where Israel has been victorious, they've defeated this attempted overthrow, they won, but it doesn't really feel like they won, right? And that's why they come slinking into the city, they, they, they steal into the city, as it says there in verse Three. This is, I don't know if maybe uh, might compare or, or, or give us a sense, um, maybe if your favorite team wins a big game, but their star player is injured in the process. And so even though you won, it doesn't necessarily feel like you won. And that's the sense, that's the feeling that's going on here. This is a bitter victory for Israel. Right? The victory is bitter and subdued. It's not sweet and celebrated, and it is driven because their king is mourning. And so Joab returns. He's waiting for David to be like, great job, man. He comes back and all he hears is, hey, David's mourning. He's weeping. He's not greeted. He's not thanked. He's just confronted with David's tears. And that, 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 that extends to the people in verse 2 and verse 3. And so they just kind of slink into the city. And what I think is really interesting is, is when you compare David's response and his mourning here in chapter 19 to the death of another one of his sons back in chapter 12, right? David's son back in chapter 12, after a week, ends up dying. And what does he do? He kind of gets up, like, I'm going to go wash myself. All right, it's just, here, here we go. And yet, here this evil, wicked, vile son of his dies, and David is inconsolable. Why? Well, I think there's a couple of explanations for that. First of all, make note of this. This is the reality of eternal destiny. See, the reality of eternal destiny is in front of David. David says in chapter 12, while he knows, I, I, I'm not going to see my son, but I will go to him. Right? There's this sense that, again, I'm going to be re reunited with him. There's no sense of that here with Absalom. See, the, the death of Absalom cements his eternal destiny. Absalom is alienated from God permanently. And that cannot be reversed. That cannot be remedied. Jesus in Luke 16 talks about a chasm that's fixed. That, that, that once we die, that's it. Like it's, it's finished. It's, it's settled. And so church, we, we got to be honest about eternal destinies. 
We don't help people when we act like functional universalists. And here's what I mean in this, right? We believe the gospel and we believe that those who trust in Christ will be uh, with him for all of eternity, but those who rebel against Christ will be alienated from him. But then someone we know dies or someone close to us dies and we're tripping all over ourselves trying to soothe our conscience or someone else's conscience as to why that person who never trusted in Jesus is somehow with him. That's not helpful. It's confusing. It's disorienting. We don't help anybody when we do this. In fact, in that moment, I think a far better approach is to heed the counsel of Solomon. Here's what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 7. In fact, I like to read this at the end of funerals. It says this, better to go into the house of mourning than into the house of feasting. Why, Solomon? Why would that be better for us? Here's why. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. See, because we're all going to die. Every single one of us. Did you know that? Did you know you're going to die? I hope that's not news to you, right? We're all going to die. Like it's going to happen to all of us. We're all going to die. But what death does is it affords us the opportunity to consider our own destiny, right? Those who are submitted to Jesus for all of eternity to to, to be in fellowship and, and relationship with him, but those who have rebelled against him once and for all, for all of time, to be alienated and separated from him. That's the bitterness that this moment is tied to for David. Right? That Absalom had rejected anything and everything to do with the Lord, and so his eternal destiny is cemented. And for all of us, this should cause us to consider our own destinies as well as give us gospel urgency. And there's the reality of eternal destiny, but I think there's a second element that makes this such a bitter victory for David, and it's the reality of sin's consequences. See, it's David's guilt that is fueling his grief. This is God's judgment for David's sin. That's what he said back in chapter 12. The sword is never gonna depart from your house. And so in this moment, what David is confronted with is he's confronted with the consequences of his own sin. And I wonder, I wonder if you've ever stopped, if you've ever paused to consider what may be the consequences of this sin. What, what, what would it cost if I were to pursue this? What, what would be the fallout if I were to chase after this particular sin? When I was in seminary, one of the assignments that we had was a, really an easy assignment in its task, but it was profound in its impact. It was twofold. Here was the assignment. The assignment was first, you had to write 100 consequences for moral failure. If I, was, if I was to engage in some kind of moral failure, what are the consequences of that action? And then the follow-up to that was you had to write a two-page response paper to the exercise. Here was the sum of my response paper. It was, A, I was shocked at how quickly I got to 100. Literally, as fast as I could type is how I got to 100. It took about eight minutes. And then the second thing that was maybe even more stunning was how many things didn't even make it onto the list because it was after 100. And say, I wonder for us, how many times do we really consider, do we, are we really paying attention? Do I understand, what is this going to cost? Maybe even in your own life. That thing that you've been mulling in your mind. That thing that you've been considering. That thing that maybe you haven't put to death. What is it going to cost you? What is it going to cost your family? What is it going to cost your church? What is it going to cost the reputation of Jesus? And that alone should be enough to say, you know, it's not worth it. This is a bitter victory, and it requires a rebuke, and that's what Joab does in verse 5. In fact, it's a bold rebuke. 
Look at verse 5 and following. Joab comes into the house of the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines. Now listen to this line. Because you, have lo- you love those who hate you and you hate those who love you. For you've made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Verse 7, now therefore arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. It's a bold rebuke, isn't it? And I would argue one of the greatest resources throughout David's life is having friends and people in his life that love him enough, that care enough about him to tell him the hard word. That's what Jonathan did. It's what Abigail did. It's what Nathan did. And now it's Joab, right? An act of love telling David, hey man, (laughs) here's what's going on. It's an incredible resource to have a friend that will tell you the hard word. Do you have friends like that? Do you have friends that love you enough that they're not just going to tell you what you want to hear? They're going to tell you what you need to hear? They're going to tell you the hard word? They're going to call you to account? They're going to issue a rebuke when it's needed? And then the follow-up to that is, are you a friend like that? Are you willing to love the people that God has put in your life enough to tell them the hard word, not just the accommodating word? This is a bold rebuke. I think there's two things, two things I want to just take a moment here. Uh, to keep in mind as we consider, as we think about having to go to someone uh, in some kind of rebuke, and we're having to go to someone where we've got to issue a hard word to them. So as we think about healthy rebuke, notice two things that, that Joab does here. First of all, that we address the issue. Verse 5 and 6, he's addressing the issue. He's like, hey, here's what's wrong. Here's the problem with what you're doing. And specifically saying, man, you're mourning Absalom at the expense of thanking the very people that put their life on the line so that you wouldn't die. We address the issue. Loved ones, when we need to go to someone, we need to address the issue. We need to state it plainly. We need to state it clearly. We need to state it honestly. We don't have to get into the peripherals. We don't have to get out here and all the other stuff. We just got to get at the issue. Which even in that, that should be really helpful for us. Okay, what is it that I have to even address? And then we peel away all the other stuff. That we address the issue. But notice also this. In verse 7, that we address the result. See, what, what, what Joab did for David in verse 7 was he's like, Hey, let me just help you see what this looks like down the line if your conduct and behavior doesn't change. He's like, man, you think, you think the defection with Absalom was bad. You haven't seen anything if you don't change your posture soon. And so when, we're, when we have to confront people, when we have to rebuke people, we want to address the issue. Then we want to help them see, here's what's coming downstream if nothing changes. Here's one of the ways I see this play out in my life or in my work. Is it's... Unfortunately, it's more common than I'd like to admit where you'd sit down with a couple and, uh, and they're just like, man, I just don't know if it's worth it. I don't know if it's worth sticking out. I don't know if it's worth staying together. And whether that's both of them or one of them, like I'm really struggling. And a lot of times what they think is, I just want to get some space from my spouse. I'm like, all right, well, let's just look down the stream. Because I know what your thing is. If I can just get away for a little bit, everything gets better. It doesn't get better. It actually gets far harder. What's going to happen with your kids? What's going to happen with your finances? What's going to happen? Right, and you just start all those things down the stream, and it's like, okay, maybe this isn't worth it. 
kind of similar to that same exercise of 100 consequences. But a bold rebuke, we want to address the issue, and then we want to address the future result and helping people to see. And so Joab goes to David, and then look at verse 8. David hears the word, because it says, Then the king arose and took his seat in the gate. And the people were all told, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate. And all the people came before the king. Now, this is what David was doing when this coup started. This is actually symbolic of David returning to his role as functioning as king. Right? That he's back in the gate, that he's, he, he's listening to the, uh, the, the various issues of the people. And so the king has returned and then really for the rest of the chapter, what we see in, in, in stunning form, I might add, is the initiating mercy of God's king. So God's king has come back, and now we're going to see how God's going to respond to the very people who betrayed him. Because there's this really interesting sense and, and predicament and problem for the nation of Israel, right? They, they had just all sided with his son. They, they, they were okay with David being killed. They, they were okay with him being alienated. They went along with this. Well, now Absalom's dead and David's come back. So what do you do? In fact, it, it, it says this in verse 8 and 9 uh, and 10. It, it, it unpacks their dilemma. Now Israel had fled every man to his own home. And all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, the king has delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines, and now he's fled out of the land from Absalom. But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? So they're, they're kind of like, well, what do we do? This paralyzing sense of hesitancy. It's like, well, we, we kind of turned our back on David, but he, he was the one who rescued us from people. But, but, but we went with Absalom, and he's dead. Like, what do we do? Well, here's the issue. The issue is that they've offended and rebelled against the king. And what they're struggling to figure out is how do we regain the king's favor? Does that sound familiar? Right, that's our situation, isn't it? It's the exact same scenario that we find ourselves in uh, before the Lord, that we've rebelled against the king. And in and of ourselves, we have no way to regain God's favor. And so what this account is going to do, it is going to illustrate in story form the very elements of the gospel. This is the gospel in story form. That God's king is going to act decisively to restore his rebellious people. That he's going to issue pardon. He's going to pursue mercy. Just like God's king, Jesus, is going to issue pardon and pursue mercy. And so all of these different characters and all of the different things that unfold really is just illustrating in story form the various elements of the gospel. The initiating mercy of God's king. Make note of this first of all, that God's king initiates our pardon. God's king is the one who initiates our pardon. So in verses 8 through 10, the people are wavering. What do we do? And it's not the people who take the lead. It's David who takes the lead. Look at verse 11. And King David sent this message to Zadok and Abiathar, the priest. He says, say to the elders of Judah, why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house when the word of all Israel has come to the king? You are my brothers, and you are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? And say to Amasa, are you not my bone and my flesh? God, do so to me, and more also if you're not commander of my army from now on in the place of Joab. And so, so the people are wavering, but David's like, nope, I'm going to take matters into my own hands. 
And I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to restore you. I'm going to be the one to initiate the pardon. David's the one who reaches out to the priest. David's the one that tells the priest, go to the elders, go to the people. David's the one who goes to Amasa and says, hey, you're going to take over the army. He initiated this, not the people. Now, church, listen. Listen. God is the one who comes to us. God is the one who pursues us. God is the one who initiates with us. God is the one that is chasing you and I down, not the other way around. Did you hear that? God's not passively waiting. Oh, I really hope he'll choose me. Nope, doesn't work like that. Right, just like Damien and Becky were saying, talking about Naomi. Right, Naomi's not like, well, I think I'll go to them. That doesn't work that way. Right, they're going to go get her, which is the same thing that God does for us. He comes and he gets us. And David is appealing to his tribesmen, the very ones who conspired with Absalom to put him to death. And he's issuing and pursuing and initiating the pardon. And as if that isn't stunning enough, he he does what seems utterly crazy. He takes the commander of the very opposing army that was set on killing him, and he takes Amasa and he puts him in charge. Like, what what are you doing? I mean, part of you, you read that, you're like, that's just dumb. That just feels like a really bad idea. Why would he do this? I think there's two, two reasons that are driving what David is doing here. The first is this, that David is modeling the mercy that God has first extended to him. That's what he's doing. See, because what David knows is that, that, that God was merciful to him. David should have been dead. Right? David should have died for his sins, and yet mercy was being extended to him. And so now David is looking at other people going, you know what, you should die for your rebellion and your sin, but I didn't die because God was merciful to me, so now I'm going to extend that same mercy to you. Amasa, you should be dead. Not only am I not going to kill you, but I'm going to place you in this prominent position, maybe even an act of clemency and modeling this great mercy. And there's this sense where David now has the sword, right, the, 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 the rule in his hand, and yet he's extending the same mercy that was first extended to him. He's modeling what Paul will tell us in Colossians 3, that as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive Loved ones, the mercy of God shown to us should make its way from us to others who, like us, aren't deserving of mercy. And yet all of us become the recipients of God's mercy. And this is why people who profess to be believers in Jesus and yet are unmerciful in their dealings, this is why this is so troubling. Because you don't understand the gospel. You don't understand what God's done for you. Because if you did, you wouldn't respond to people that way. You would respond in an entirely different way. So let me just ask you, when you're wronged, when someone wrongs you, is my default response one of mercy or one that lacks mercy? When you're betrayed, is my default response to respond mercifully or to respond unmercifully? And if you find yourself lacking mercy, okay, what aspect of the gospel have you forgotten? What aspect of the gospel has not taken root in your life? What aspect of the gospel are you choosing to ignore? God's king initiates our pardon. He models mercy that God first extended him. Secondly, that David is typifying God's initiating grace to restore us. 
right? So, so none of these people have, have any play to be restored. There's no recourse for them to solve the problem of their betrayal. But the king initiatively acts with initiative to restore them. That's what David is doing here. By the way, that's what God is doing for us in Jesus. That God is initiating our pardon, that he's pursuing us. He's coming after us on our behalf. God's king initiates our pardon. Secondly, make note of this, look at verse 14 and 15, that God's king invites our renewal. So, so, in verse 14, it says, and he swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man. Right? So they're all in on it. May even be a little bit of a play on words of what, what, what Absalom did when he stole the hearts um, of the men. So they send word to the king, return both you and all your servants. So the king came back to the Jordan and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and to bring the king over the Jordan. So like, hey, let's come back. We, we want to be restored and let's go to Gilgal to do that. Ones, there are places in the Bible or, or items in the Bible that become synonymous with certain themes and certain elements. Right? So when you think of wilderness, what are some things that come to your mind when you think of wilderness? Tell me. Okay, no, no, like, okay. I, I don't know what that means. Like, you got to speak confidently, church. I can't hear you. Tell me, what's something that comes to mind when you think of wilderness? Desert, testing, separation, separation wandering, right? And, 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 and that's true of Israel. Uh, we've actually seen that with David. That's true of Jesus. Okay, let's do that again, but confidently. No mumbling, just confidently. All right, Jerusalem. What comes to mind when you think of Jerusalem? Holy, what, some temple. And, and temple is presence of God, right? There, there's these places that, that become synonymous with certain things. Okay, so why say that? What's the big deal with Gilgal? Anyone know anything about Gilgal? That have any place in Israel's history? Yeah, just a little bit. In fact, if you go back to Joshua 4 and 5, Joshua 4 and 5, right as they came over the Jordan River, and right before they went into Jericho, they came to Gilgal. Now, Gilgal is, is synonymous for a few things. You've got, you've got stones of remembrance, right? Which we're, we're, we're going to remember God's work. We're going to remember God's faithfulness. But, but it, particularly in, in Joshua chapter 5, there's another thematic element to Gilgal. And it's where they reconsecrate themselves to the Lord. It's a renewal of the covenant. In fact, it's kind of graphic in its description, but uh, here's the long and short of it. For 40 years, uh, they, they had not circumcised any of their males. Now, circumcision was the sign of the covenant. Right, so that's probably an uncomfortable couple days for Israel hanging out there in the wilderness, all right? But they all were circumcised, and it's a, it's a sign of recommitment and, and renewal in the covenant. And this has a very similar sense to that. We're all going to go back to the place that is synonymous with the remembrance of God's work and recommitting ourselves to him so that we can be in full covenant, in full rightness, if you will, with our Lord. This is an opportunity for the people to give themselves entirely over to the Lord and to his king. Now, loved one, maybe you find yourself, maybe you find yourself in a, in, in a similar situation. That if, if you were to be honest, if you were to be truly honest, that, that in your life there's been drifting, there's been doubting, there's been this apathy, this pursuit of another, some kind of discontentment, whatever it is. And what you need 
is to be renewed. What you need is to consecrate yourself once again unto the Lord. Roger Ellsworth says it this way in describing this. He says, we all from time to time have become infatuated with some Absalom and recklessly pursue it without regard to God's will, even as Israel did. But God does not wash his hands of us. He would be justified in doing so, but he patiently bears with us, forgives us, and restores us to fellowship with him. God is inviting our renewal because God chooses to rule in our hearts by his grace and his mercy. Loved one, God is inviting you into renewal. God is inviting you to recommit yourself anew and afresh to him. Will you run to him for that? What a beautiful moment, right? Let's all go and renew ourselves once again. And then starting in verse 16, there are three characters from 16 to 40 that we've seen before in the story that each in their own way highlight some other element of the gospel. And so notice, first of all, Shimei. Remember him? Chapter 16, he might have been one of the most volatile people uh, in, in, of all besides Absalom in, in David's exodus, slinging stones and hurling curses at David as he fled from Jerusalem. Well, now he shows back up, and no surprise, his tone has changed a little bit since Absalom is dead and David has returned to the throne. Here's what it says. Now Shimei, the son of Gera the Benjamite, from Baharim, hurried down to come down with the men of Judah to meet King David. And with him were a thousand men from Benjamin, and Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, and with his 15 sons and 20 servants, rushed down to the Jordan before the king. And they crossed the ford to bring over the king's household and to do his pleasure. And Shimei, the son of Gera, fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan. And he said to the king, Let not my lord hold me guilty, or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my lord the king left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart. Hey, do you remember when I was hurling insults and glad you were going to die? I wasn't serious about that. For your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph, to come down to meet my lord the king. Now, I think it's worth noting that not everyone believes that Shimei was sincere, not the least of which is one of David's men, Abishai. Look at what he says in verse 21. Shall not Shimei be put to death for this because he cursed the Lord's anointed? But what's important for us to see in this moment is not even the sincerity or the genuine nature of what Shimei is saying, but to see David's response. Look at verse 22. What have I to do with you, sons of Zariah, that you should this day be an adversary to me? Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For, I, for do I not know that I am king, or I, sorry, I am this day king over Israel? And the king said to Shimei, can't you see this moment where he turns and he looks at Shimei and he says, you shall not die. You're not going to die. You should, but you're not going to. And then it says, and the king gave him his oath. See, what we see with Shimei is that God's king encourages our confession. God's king encourages our confession. Now Shimei comes back and he's got these thousand men and he's got Ziba and his kids and servants and all this stuff. And there are many, myself included, that, that, that question the sincerity and the, legitimate, the legitimacy of what Shimei is saying. And there's a few reasons for that. One, the, the entourage that he brings feels a little bit like a ploy. 
Hey, David, here's why it'd be advantageous for you to hold on to us. You got a lot of guys. Right? That just seems a little questionable. Secondly, David's own guys don't believe it. Right? Abishai was the same guy who back in 16 was like, can I take off his head? He's still ready to take his head off. Right? He's not buying it. But probably the most notable reason to question this is David himself, shortly before he dies, will tell his son Solomon in 1 Kings to execute Shimei for his rebellion against David. So it's entirely possible that David himself, even in this moment, doesn't believe it. Right? Shimei committed treason. He, right? I doubt he's here out of love and loyalty. I think he's here out of self-interest. But it's David's response that we want to focus on. Because David's response is a demonstration of mercy that encourages sinners to confess and to repent of their sin. That's why he's telling Shimei, you're not going to die. You should die, but you're not going to die. And unlike other kings who would have quickly and easily dealt with any of those who had been rebellious against them, any of those who had stood against them or opposed them, David is establishing a kingdom that is rooted in pardoning mercy. And he wants to encourage confession that will lead to pardon, which is how God operates throughout the entirety of the scriptures. Turn with me. I want you to see this. Turn with me to Isaiah 55 for just a moment. This is one of a number of places that we could go to demonstrate this truth. Isaiah 55. In fact, we read this in the service last week, and I just chuckled because I'm like, I'm using that next week because it perfectly illustrates what's happening here. Here's what it says, Isaiah 55. I'm going to start in verse 6. And you're probably really familiar with verse 8 and 9, but you need to see verse 6 and 7 first. It says this, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly what? Pardon. Okay, don't miss this. The context is about returning to the Lord. It's about God's compassion. It's about God's abundant pardon. Do you see that? I mean, is that obvious and clear? Nod your head if you're with me. You see that? Okay, right? We see that in the text. Because here's what we do. Verses 8 and 9 are some of the most misquoted verses that exist. We pull these suckers out of context all the time. Church, stop doing it. Because what they're actually saying is more beautiful than what we're trying to say that they say. Because what we do with verse 8 and 9 is like, hey, God's omniscient. There's all kinds of verses that will tell you God's omniscient. These two aren't some of them. In the context of pardon, here's what he says next. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Contextually, the ways and the thoughts that he's talking about are what? It's about pardon. It's about mercy. It's about compassion. See, what what God's saying in this moment is, I don't forgive like you forgive. I don't pardon like you pardon. I don't release like you release, right? Because when we're wronged, the walls go up, the defense mechanism starts, Maybe I'm looking for some kind of retribution. I want, I want vengeance, maybe a little bit of bitterness. When God's wrong, what happens? More pardon. And when God's wronged again, what happens? More pardon. Why? Because he doesn't think like we think. He doesn't act like we act. He's distinctly different from us 
in this. Right? He, doesn't, he doesn't think the way that we think. And church, don't you get it? Right? We should be demolished in judgment. And yet what God offers us is pardon. The mercy of God inviting and encouraging us to confess our sin. So let me ask you. What is it? What is it that you've withheld, that you've silenced, that you've suppressed? What have you withheld confessing? What have you withheld bringing to the Lord? What have you withheld repenting of because you fear the response? God is inviting you. He's encouraging you. He's gifting you with the opportunity to come and confess to him the God who abundantly pardons. Because his thoughts aren't your thoughts and his ways aren't your ways. Because this glorious God of mercy will abundantly pardon through Jesus. I would simply ask you as a follow-up, what is holding you back? God's king encourages our confession. Next, we see this in verse 24 through 30. Another character we're introduced to is Mephibosheth. Remember him, Jonathan's son? In fact, back in chapter 16, Ziba had lied and said, Mephibosheth, he didn't come because he thought Absalom was going to come back in and restore the kingdom to him. That would be the most preposterous proposal out there. Absalom wouldn't give anything to anybody. Uh, he couldn't see beyond himself. But that was the word that Ziba gave uh, to David. Now, when you read verse 24, you realize immediately that was not the case. Because here's what it says. And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. And he had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the, ki- until the day he came back in safety. Uh, and so what, what, what the text is telling is his appearance is clear. He's mourning for David. That, that, that's why he's just entirely unkept. Right? It's a sign of mourning. And so David, in verse 25, is like, hey, why, why did you not go? And you almost, Mephibosheth will be like, dude, what do you mean that I go? I, I can't walk. Like, what did you want me to do? But he says, in verse 26, he's like, I was deceived. Like, I, I, I went out to, uh, to, 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 to go, but my, my servant deceived me. Ziba deceived me. And in verse 27, he says, he slandered your servant to the Lord. But then notice in the middle of verse 27, all that just stops. And here's what Mephibosheth says. He says, but my Lord, the king is like the angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my Lord, the king. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the king? And he's like, you know what, man, if, if, if I'm just going to be entirely honest, like I, I've got no right. You've been abundantly good to me. You've been excessively good to me. You've let me eat at your table. I'm just just gonna cast myself upon your mercy. Because God's king is our prized possession. God's king is our prized possession. And here, as as he cast himself upon uh, David's mercy, there's an immense blessing, church, of entrusting ourselves to the Lord because God will do more and God will do better by us and for us than we could ever do for ourselves. We've got to learn to give ourselves over to that. David knew that. In fact, in, in chapter 24, here, let me show you. We're, we're not actually going to preach 24. We're, we, we've got a couple weeks left, and then uh, we're into the psalm. So I'm going to give you a brief overview of 24 right now, and you can be a noble Berean and fill in the gaps. But in 2 Samuel 24, uh, David goes out and takes the census, and there's a judgment that's issued against him. For this wicked act. And so, so, so Gad, this prophet, comes to David. And he says, all right, here's the deal. You can have three years of famine. You can have three months of fleeing. Or you can have three days of pestilence. What do you want? Like, pick your punishment. 
Here's David's response. He says this. He says, let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. That we would cast ourselves upon God's mercy. Because God's mercy is a mercy that is good. God's mercy is a mercy that, that can be trusted. It's right, and it's far better than we can accomplish on our own. And so in response to Mephibosheth throwing himself upon David's mercy, David realizes, okay, I, I, I was wrong, um, and, and I'm going to take some of the land back, and I'm going to split it between you and Ziba. And look at Mephibosheth's response in verse 30. I love this. Oh, let him take it all. He can have all of it. I don't care about the land. I don't care about the property. Why? Since my Lord the King has come safely home. Say, like, I, I don't care about the property if I can have the king. Don't miss this, church. What Mephibosheth treasured above all was the king. His chief desire was the king and not his stuff. Can we say that same thing? Is that true of us in our heart of hearts? Would I rather have the king than the stuff that comes with the king? Because I think this response right here highlights a lot of the disconnect that tends to accompany how we tend to think about eternity. Right? You hear people talk about or they're imagining heaven or, hey, what do you think it's going to be like? Or, right? and, and, then, and then all of a sudden the things that come into their mind, well, when I think of heaven, I think of, and we do this really weird thing where we just find the things that we think are best and that we have some obscene amount of it. Right, So like our favorite drink is going to fill a swimming pool and everything's covered in bacon, which that actually probably will be the case, okay? But, but right, like just these just absurd things. And yet the pressing question, we're thinking about eternity. It's like, at what point does Jesus even come into view? Like at what point are you excited that he's there? Because Mephibosheth saying, I don't care about any of this stuff. I just want, I just want the king. I don't care about the stuff. Just give me the Savior. See, our issue is we'll fixate on all this stuff at the expense of fixing our eyes on the true prize, which is Jesus. Let me try to bottom line this. All the trappings of heaven without the person of Jesus is just a prettier version of hell. Did you hear that? All the trappings of heaven without the person of Jesus is just a prettier version of hell. Mephibosheth didn't care about the stuff. God help us, we wouldn't care about the stuff, that we'd care about the Savior. What do you care about? Who do you care about? Who are you treasuring? What's most precious to you? God's king is our prized possession. And then finally this final character, a guy named Barzillai. We saw him in chapter 17, and he provided a bunch of food and beds while they were on the fly there from Absalom, here's the final thing we see, that God's king is worthy of our commitment. God's king is worthy of our commitment. Now, I'm just going to read verse 32, um, because I think there's a couple things here I want to press into. But long story short, what Barzillai is going to do is he's essentially going to offer, uh, we don't know for sure, but it seems like his, he's going to send his son back with the king um, in these later verses. But there's two things about his description that I think are really, really healthy healthy and helpful for us to look at. Here's how it describes him. Barzillai was a very aged man, 80 years old. He had provided the king with food while he stayed at Mahanaim, for he was a very wealthy man. And I just wrote this down, that God's king is worthy of our commitment. 
Now, first of all, it, it describes, I mean, I crack up at this description. He's a very aged man, right? It's like, well, he's, he's advanced in your, dude's old, right? That's what the Bible's trying to say. He's just an old guy. That, that's what it's, it's getting at here. And yet, his advanced age had not made him calloused or disinterested in God's work. Now, in our society, we think about old age, we tend to equate it to retirement. And when we think about retirement, we tend to go two ways with that. One is we have kind of this lackadaisical approach to life, that, that life consists of golf, gardening, and Arnold Palmer's, like just this permanent vacation where we don't do anything else. Oh, you don't find that anywhere in the Bible. That, 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 that's not a biblical thing. And then the other side of that is it's not like this lackadaisical approach. It's this really limited approach. Oh, you're kind of old. You can't do much. Now, there are certain things as you get older that there are limitations, but there's other things as you get older that you have more and more of, namely wisdom and insight. And yet this man, even in his advanced age, had meaningful ministry. His age was not a hindrance or a limitation. And if you've let your age restrict your ministry, you need to repent of that. And you need to give yourself over to the Lord's work. Secondly, we're told that he's wealthy. In fact, he's very wealthy. And yet, he didn't allow his wealth to make him proud or greedy and or self-sufficient. In fact, his wealth ended up getting leveraged for the kingdom. Now, I think there's, when we talk about wealth, right, anytime you start talking about wealth in church, people get squeamish. Let's just blow past that and let's be honest here because I think there's a couple mistakes that we make about wealth in our society. The first is this, that it's easier to be generous once you're wealthy. That's not true. Now, it, it, it might be less costly. It, it might be less demanding but typically, the more you have, the harder it is to be generous. Further, generosity is not cultivated in abundance. Generosity is cultivated in a commitment to sacrificial giving. People who are wealthy when they're generous were wealthy when they weren't generous. That's the point. Right? So they say, well, when I get wealthy, I'll give more. You won't. If you won't give generously when you have a little, I promise you, you won't give generously when you have a lot. Secondly, second mistake, we think about wealthy, we're like, well, that's not me. Yes, it is. Definitively. I can look each and every one of you in the eye and honestly say, you are wealthy. Because here's the mistake we make. We look at Bezos or Musk or Gates or guys like that, and we're like, well, yeah, they're wealthy. No, that, that's like insane wealth. But any American who is working some kind of professional job, you are going to find yourself somewhere in the top 5 to top 1% of global wealth. So church, you and I are far closer to Bill Gates than we are even to the average, much less the bottom. And I say all that to say that we want to take and leverage our years and our wealth and our resources and invest them into the kingdom of God. And so let your years, let your resources, let your possessions, let your wealth, let them be something. I'm going to commit this to the Lord because God's king is worthy of our commitment in every facet of our life. This is God's initiating mercy. Praise God for that. Real quick as we close, how do we respond to this? Well, I just want to let the characters that we've seen speak to it. And I'm going to be real quick uh, as, we, as we move through these. Here's how these characters help us respond to God's mercy. First of all, as we think about the priests, that we would be people who race to God's pardon. 
Right? They all race to Gilgal, to that place of renewal. Uh, for us, we want to race to the cross. Let us be people who will meet Jesus there where his abundant mercy addresses the problem of our sin. When we look at Shimei, how do we respond to God's mercy? We want to be people who confess our sin. And David enacted this, the, the, this standard of pardon and forgiveness. Of course, he's taking his cue from God. But let us be people who quickly confess our sin, returning to the pardoning mercy of Jesus. When we look at Mephibosheth, how do we respond to God's mercy? We want to treasure our Savior. That we care more about the person than we do about the stuff. Let us be people who have greater joy and hope fixed in Jesus not in things. And finally this, when we look at Barzillai, that we would use our resources for God's glory, but he offered this humble service and leveraged what he had for the king. And let us be people who leverage what God has entrusted to us for his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. God, we are so grateful that you have initiated, that you have pursued, that you have sought us out. God, we know in and of ourselves that there's nothing that would restore us to you. And so, Father, we do pray. God, we pray that in response to your mercy, the fullness of your initiation on our behalf, God, that you would help us to respond in the various ways and the various aspects that we've seen in these individuals. And so, God, for some of us, it's to... To, to give ourselves and our possessions and, and, and the totality of who we are over to you. For others of us, to, to embrace and adopt a sense of confession. For others of us, to, to race to this place of renewal and consecration. For others of us, to prize you, to treasure you, to cherish you above all other things. But God, we thank you that you initiate, that you pursue. God, that you're coming after us. That your mercy is sufficient. That it's adequate, that we don't have to do anything else. But simply embrace and receive what you have so freely and graciously given to us and what you have also spared us from. God, thank you that you welcome back betrayers and make them sons and daughters. We pray this in your name. Amen.